The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello, MG. Hey, Alex. How are you? Good. Uh, I'm thinking we'll do this in three segments, one about the state of Apple, one about the epic fight that they're having with the Fortnite creator, and then maybe a little bit about your career. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Okay, great. Uh, Let's roll the music. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast. Uh, We're into the end of our first month and we have a great guest here to round it out. It's MG Siegler. He's a partner at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures. Uh, Also spent time as a reporter. Um, So we'll see what he says about the great reporter venture capitalist divide, (laughs) if he decides to comment on that. Um, And he's also my favorite writer on Apple. I think he's the best writer on Apple out there today. So uh, I'm sorry, Gruber. I'm sorry, German. But I think MG has the best pulse on the company out there. Um, MG, I read a ton of your work as I was reporting on Apple for always day one. And I'm always, uh, you know, entertained by it, number one, and and two, just blown away by how clear your thinking is on the company. So I'm really excited to be able to speak about the company with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words, Alex. Appreciate that. Yeah. And so we so GV is Google Ventures. How does that color your thinking on Apple? Can we accept that your, uh, uh, you know, your your take on the company is not with uh, not colored by the Google lens, or should we take it with a grain of salt? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, so when I joined GV, when it was still Google, actually Google Ventures, um, you know, seven plus years ago, uh, obviously, there was a bit of a, I think, a little bit of a shock in the ecosystem, because as you note, I had been covering Apple uh, for so long for TechCrunch and, you know, for, for VentureBeat before that. And, uh, you know, even even post that, I was just writing a lot about Apple still. And um, there was always the that's sort of like, wow, uh, did not expect, uh, you know, that, that, that person to join, uh, an entity affiliated with Google. And, you know, it's been long enough now, or hopefully, uh, I, I've still made it clear that I can be, uh, unbiased on both sides of the equation. Uh, I think I take swipes at Apple. Uh, I think I take swipes at Google when warranted. Um, and then I think, uh, I think though, you know, it's, it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky time though, because, it does feel like Apple's in a bit of a, a state of flux, more so than it has been. Obviously, it's the you know the two trillion dollar company at this point, um, so it's in a position of power that really hasn't been seen before. And you know, when I was starting reporting on Apple, um, it was still still more or less the up and comer, you know, taking on obviously um, uh, Windows back in the day. But then, of course, there was the the rivalry with with Android and within Google and stuff, and so. Yeah, it's just an interesting time for the company right now is the the big behemoth that uh, that obviously a lot's going on that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And I'll just say that having read your work, like to me, I kept found, my, found myself nodding my head being like, yep, yep, this this resonates, this resonates. And I think the two of us are probably more negative on Apple than the consensus. So it's kind of a lonely place to be. And I think that when you know I find someone who's like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. And I'm like seeing it and it's like, oh, it doesn't make sense. 
it feels good. Like I don't feel like I'm entirely crazy, um, but people can listen to this thing and, and get a sense as to whether they agree with us or not on Apple. But it's always, I mean, whether Apple is on the top or the bottom, like whether Apple is going up or the decline is like one of the more fun debates in the tech world. Um, and the people who are against the company are generally in the minority in terms of that opinion. But um, but I, yeah, to, to me, there are so many things that don't make sense with the company right now. So I'm hoping we can get into as many as possible in the time we have. Yep. Sure thing. Okay. So let's start, you know, you mentioned that Apple is in flux. Um, one of the things that I wonder about with Apple is their identity. You know, they are at the end of the day, number one, a devices maker. Uh, and they've ridden this wave to prominence by building things like the iPod, like the, like the Mac, and then like the iPhone. And, you know, I know that there's been this debate of like, when are they going to come up with something new? And of course, they've built the watch and they've built AirPods, which I call a watch for the iPhone, for iPhone owners and headphones for iPhone owners versus, you know, uh, category shifting inventions and then of themselves, like the uh, the iPhone has been, like the Mac has been. Um, and so I sort of wonder, like companies operate in these two different phases. One is they... Uh, they invent and they redefine what we use. Uh, and then two is when they've built a big enough uh, product portfolio, they start to take those assets and milk the assets and get every dollar they can out of them. And I think the good companies never take their foot off the accelerator in terms of invention. And a company like Microsoft is a good example of that. It did go into asset milking mode when it had Windows and all of a sudden took a look around and it was the owner of the desktop operating system in the age of mobile and cloud. And I wonder if the same thing will happen to Apple now that it's going so hard on the iPhone, really using all of its its uh, its weight right now to get as much money as it can out of that device. And does that eventually somewhere down the line bite that company in the ass? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so this has obviously been an argument for, you know, dating back to um, when Steve Jobs was even still alive, right? Like they, uh, you know, they, they famously, of course, launched the iPad a few years after the iPhone. And that was sort of seen as, as could that be the next big thing? And it looked like it might have been out of the gate, right? It became a, a sort of huge new market right away. And it's still a big market, but it's sort of... Um, I guess in a way it's sort of ebbed and flowed. Uh, it's just a different market, of course. People figured out than, than what the phone was, where it's not going to be necessarily an upgrade every year device. And so, yeah, really since the the launch of the iPhone, um, everyone's been sort of waiting to see what the next big thing would be. I think the reality of the situation is that we're fully recognizing now that nothing is going to be as big as as the iPhone was as a product category. I mean, that is really what has driven Apple to become a $2 trillion company, the biggest company of all time, because they uh, basically created a market that, uh, you know, was was unlike anything that we've seen before it. And it became, you know, the fully ubiquitous computing device that, you know, eventually everyone in the world is going to have some sort of smartphone with them. And we're, only, we're already like a good, good portion of the way there, of course, between um, iOS and Android devices. And so uh, obviously in the post-Jobs Apple, um, it, it has been a bit of a, of a challenge to try to figure out what that next device is. And I think that in a way it feels like they've done a good job and Tim Cook has done a good job of figuring out how to keep the ball rolling forward on top of and augmenting the iPhone. You mentioned a bunch of the devices, I think, uh, from the AirPods to the watch. These are all things that are directly tied to the iPhone um, or have been. Uh, up to date. And I think, you know, the, the next thing, obviously, that that's rumored to be 
um, sort of closing in hardware wise is uh, is some sort of augmented reality you know headset glasses device and that still seems like it may be tied to the iPhone though right like it would use potentially at least the first version might use um, the iPhone's compute power just like the the watch has done has uh, you know sort of tethered to the phone um, in order to do that I do I, I want to give Apple credit though because I feel like people were worried that it would not be able to sort of um, you know surpass uh, what it had done already in the in the jobs world, and certainly from a business perspective, uh, you know, we're way way past where it was when Steve Jobs, you know, unfortunately passed away. I think the company was, you know, something at like a three or four hundred uh, million billion dollar market cap, which is obviously still a massive company. Um, but now that seems quaint, right? Uh, in hindsight, now it's a two trillion dollar company. Right. I think the number is that Tim Cook has given back more money to Apple shareholders than it was worth originally when he took it over. When he took it over, that's right, um, which is you know sort of just incredible. And and you bring up Microsoft, and obviously that's that's an interesting analog here because uh, you know I think people, myself included, would say, you know, from an outsider perspective, it looked like that during the Steve Ballmer years after Bill Gates that that basically yeah Microsoft was just milking the the profits off of Windows. And again, they they did really well from a profit perspective, and the business seemed to do well. But at the same time, like if you look at the the stock and the market cap, it was very flat. It was pretty much a you know what you would consider to be a lost decade from that perspective. Now there's obviously macro stuff that's involved with that, and and you know obviously there's macro stuff that's involved with the with the run up of Apple uh, to two trillion dollars. But still, I think that that's sort of indicative of of the difference between the two. I think Cook um, as uh, you know, the guy who was leading operations, uh, obviously a very operations oriented person. Uh, has just been able to to keep Apple humming along and figuring out exactly what they needed to do in order to keep the business um, growing and sort of expanding from that iPhone base. Uh, you know, whereas whereas Balmer was a, a little bit, you know, much more, I think, a line in the line of uh, of just milking the profits. Um, so I, I think I think Cook deserves a lot more credit than uh, than what sort of maybe Microsoft position was in. No doubt, but it's there. There are similarities, though, right? Because you look at um, you know, let's take the the stock price out of the picture, right? There are, like you mentioned, there's a lot of macro factors here. I mean, does anyone think that two trillion is a normal valuation for Apple? Maybe a few uh, analysts who've been betting on the stock for a long time, but it does seem like a little absurd, especially because it's only one trillion mm-hmm. three months ago, four months ago. But if you look at like when it comes to building for the future, like Microsoft only turned the corner uh, after after Bomber left uh, when they started investing in cloud and mobile devices and does so I mean I mean maybe I'm wrong here but I think that Apple being so totally invested in the iPhone is missing what's going to come next now we've talked about the AR glasses we don't really have any sense as to whether those are going to be good or not they're probably going to be tied to the iPhone like you said but they've also swung a miss pretty hard at something like a voice assistant where Siri isn't very good and both uh the Echo yep. and both yeah the, the Alexa and Google Assistant have surpassed it um, again, because they viewed Siri as a feature on the iPhone as opposed to its own operating system. Yep. And they've also swung and missed on the autonomous car. Uh, so so does the company, can the company, Yep. is the company going to face this moment where they looked like when Microsoft looked around and said, we have the desktop operating system, we're already in a world that surpassed it, or are we sort of going to be living in Apple's world from here on in and they have the dominant device and they're the winner? So I think there's a lot to unpack in there. Like first and foremost, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think that you're right that um, you know they sort of missed from a strategy perspective with Alexa, even though they were first to market, right? With with really a ubiquitous uh, voice assistant, 
um, uh, with Siri, but then, uh, you know, Amazon came out with Alexa and I think they just had the right strategy, whereas Apple didn't. I think the strategy for these voice assistants, as we're seeing play out now, is to get them as ubiquitous as possible on many devices. And that's just not Apple's DNA, right? To do that, to do cheap devices that you place all over the house. And so, you know, Apple looked around and thought like, well, we already have a device in everyone's pocket. And so why do we need, uh, you know, like some cheap, hockey puck thing that's, you know, in, in, um, in someone's living room or in their bedroom. Um, because again, they have a device with them all the time. I just think that was a strategy mistake. And it does point to what I do think I do worry about, uh, from Apple's perspective. I think that they, they have good, um, execution capabilities as they've proven time and time again. I do worry about from from sort of the high-level strategy and, and product perspective, though, like that they're just going to sort of keep slightly missing, um, you know, the bigger picture of where they should be heading. And I think it really hasn't burned them yet because, again, the iPhone is such a massive product that's unlikely to be surpassed by anything. And so I think that they can afford to miss uh, time and time again for, for at least the foreseeable future. And again, it's not, you know, it's not complete strikeout. They're just they're wrong on on certain aspects, I think, of their strategy. And so um, obviously, the most recent stuff has all been predicated around moving the business much more to a services based um, business, which makes sense, of course, because, again, they can they can leverage the billion plus devices they already have through the iPhone and some of the and iPad and, and other devices that they've that they've had. And then, of course, it's just a different model uh, in a way akin to uh, what Microsoft has done right under Satya Nadella, where, you know, they basically become um, a different type of business that's not so predicated around Windows that has all these different sort of, uh, you know, cloud services and things. And Apple's just doing it much more on the consumer side um, with various services. And, and, you know, you've seen the numbers. They It looks like those are really compelling businesses, again, when you're building on top of a billion plus uh, device base, you would hope so. But, uh, you know, I think that Apple took a while to come to the realization that that's what they needed to do. But that is what they think they need to do now. And I think they can ride on that for at least the next few years. I do think there is a question, though, of what sort of the next trends are. And we already mentioned the voice uh, assistants. Um, you mentioned the cars. I mean, Will they end up kicking themselves because they missed that boat? I think the jury is still out on that. Um, they're obviously betting, though, on the the sort of AR glasses as the thing that they feel like they can use as their next, um, you know, key point in this journey. Right. And when you said they, they, you don't think they're going in the direction they should be going in all the time. Is that is this the type of stuff you're talking about? AR, autonomous driving, voice assistant, or is there something else that you think they should have been heading towards that they're not? No, I mean, I think that it feels like the AR. The AR stuff is is uh, directionally correct. I feel like um, that you know that that's still a greenfield opportunity that no one's really sort of nailed that. There have been a few attempts: Microsoft Hololens, obviously Google Glass back in the day, uh, and then Magic Leap and all these other things that have come out. But it's super nascent market still, right? And obviously, the best work is being done on the phone um, because again, it's a ubiquitous device. And Apple's done a lot of the some of the good work on it with ARKit within iOS. And so I think that's a smart thing for them to go after, but. You know, I do think you you have to wonder, like, is there something that's like a totally out of left field opportunity that they're just, uh, you know, not thinking about? And, and who's to say, of course, we don't know what's going on in their secret labs uh, necessarily. But um, but that's what I would worry about, that they that they're not going to be able to, uh, you know, they're going to be sideswiped by something that, that just totally comes out of left field that they're not quite thinking about yet. But, you know, it'll take years to see that. Yeah. And I mean, I have just a sense of reporting on their culture for the book Always Day One, just like seeing how they're so they're in such a 
refiner's mindset where it's all about refining the iPhone and then milking that asset versus the other companies out there uh, among the tech giants, Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, they're all in this mode of invention, reinvention where, you know, Apple might have this natural resource curse with the iPhone. And, you know, they, they try to develop Siri as an iPhone feature. They tried to develop the HomePod, uh, you know, in a similar way. They try to develop the car with the same methodology as the iPhone, um, you know, leading with design. So they ended up burying, at least from people I spoke with, they ended up burying uh, some of the sensors inside the design of the car, which made life hell for the machine learning engineers because they only got, you know, a limited spectrum of vision to work with and the data was much more harder. Yeah, one uh, one tangible example, I think, that you sort of brought up um, just in passing there. I do think that they missed an opportunity, If and obviously it's easy to say in hindsight, but I feel like they missed an opportunity in the living room uh, with what they have with HomePod, which, you know, is obviously set up to be like a high-end music device, which is not too surprising given their D- their history and DNA, you know, with music. And and obviously they have Apple Music now and um uh, and then, you know, high end devices and, and um, you know, expensive hardware. At the same time, it feels like they could have really done something compelling in the living room, especially for the world in which we're currently living, where, you know, imagine if there was some HomePod like device that maybe hooked up to your TV or an Apple TV, right, that that was already hooked up to your TV that had like, say, like a FaceTime camera in it. And it could be like a great connection portal, um, you know, to to your family and to loved ones and even to potentially work colleagues and things like that. And, and, you know, I mentioned, I say the word portal mm-hmm. and that of course brings portal. To mind Facebook, Facebook is doing that, you know, right. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, I sort of, well, Facebook is a number. Yeah. I, I, I sort of jumped on Facebook when they first uh, sort of came out with portal. Cause it seemed like, I mean, it was, it certainly seemed like it was bad timing when they launched it. They were in the midst of all their um, privacy, um, you know, turmoil, which they're still in the midst of in many ways, but, um, but it, in, you know, obviously they ended up being uh, positioned well for a world they could not have envisioned, you know, with the COVID-19 reality that we're all living in and work from home. But, um, but at the same time, you can imagine that Apple really should have been the company doing that. They're a company that people, you know, trust, um, you know, with privacy much more so than, than many of their competitors. And again, they already have a lot of the pieces in place because they have the FaceTime, you know, uh, software that's running on iOS devices. And so it just feels like they had an opportunity. I don't know if it should have been the HomePod. I don't know if it should have been Apple TV, but they just, you know, just weren't in the right place, right time. And it feels like, you know, I know a lot of people right now who would love to have something like that in the living room that's run by Apple that they maybe trust with with their privacy again a little bit more than some of the other companies uh, to connect with family uh, while we're all living in this this world. And again, they couldn't predict have predicted that world, but still, that feels like a product that maybe Apple should have made. Seems like an obvious product for them. And then you look at the Apple battle with Facebook, and it's pretty interesting, right? Because like Apple doesn't waste any time jumping down Facebook's throat on basically any mistake Facebook's Facebook makes. And you know what you brought up is a good example of that, which is that Facebook really, in many ways, is I think Apple's biggest competitor. I mean, they look at Apple's lock-in is iMessage. Uh, in many ways, people don't want to be green bubbles, and if we use Facebook's mess- Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and Instagram to message people, that's going to cost Apple in the long run. Uh, and then something like Portal is another good example of that. And it's sort of interesting to see the company take the shots. As I mean, Tim Cook doesn't take shots against anyone but Facebook. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that beyond he's just so angry that Facebook doesn't live <laughs> his privacy ideals. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely th- feel like it stems from that, but I do think that there's been there's been battles over the years. Um, you know, there's there's been reports even th- this week, right? Because of all the stuff going on with with Epic, which I know we're going to get to in a second. But um, but you know, f- as you note, like Facebook's one of the ones that's, that's sort of rallying behind Epic, um, and it sort of stems back from the days, you know, when I was still on the reporting side. You know, Facebook was trying to figure out ways uh, to get their gaming, their games, because if you remember, I mean, you remember this back in the day, Facebook's, you know, much of their business was based around Zynga and and all the games on their platform when they were still primarily, you know, website driven. And there was a real existential threat in how they were going to translate that to mobile um, when they didn't control any of the the mobile operating systems. And obviously there was Facebook phone and, and, and all the other stuff that they, you know, Facebook home, I think, and, and all the other stuff that they tried to do. Um, that didn't end up panning out, but they were really trying to do, you know, end runs around um, Apple by using the web browser and things like that. And, and Apple sort of would would probably try to to stop them from doing that, it seems like. And, uh, uh, you know, and I think that bad blood has sort of just continued on and on and on. And now we're in this like this real um, locking of horns between the two, because like, you know, like the, the the privacy angle is is what Apple plays up the most. And and Facebook has become the poster child for, you know, the unfortunate side effects of of maybe if you're not um if you don't have that as much on lockdown as you should they're a pretty good foil i mean i just remember i'll tell one quick story uh when i was sitting down with zuckerberg to interview him for always day one uh, i was talking to him about facebook and operating systems and how facebook is the only tech giant without an operating system you know apple has ios microsoft has windows amazon has alexa Google, I mean, has has Android and Zuckerberg just like was like holding up his phone and saying it's not how it's supposed to work. And I mean, he had an Android and just like hearing the tone in his voice in terms of the way he speaks about Apple, I was like, man, this guy really does not like Apple at all. Yeah. And um, I mean, you know, you look at the the App Store charts over the past you know, decade basically since the App Store launched, and Facebook's done a good job of getting all. You mentioned, you know, the handful of them that are all the top apps, and obviously they acquired many of them, but they've done a good job sort of dominating that chart um, for someone who doesn't control the operating system. But at the end of the day, Apple does control that operating system, and Facebook is beholden to that, and so that's always going to be attention, um, and it was always going to be attention, and I think now is really coming to a head with everything that's going on. Totally. Okay. I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap this segment up, which is that, you know, you mentioned that Apple is now moving towards more of a service model. I mean, it definitely is going to lead with hardware, but service is way more important to its business. And like one of the things that I've been thinking about with this is people love, people buy Apple because of the way it makes them feel. They love taking out an iPhone at a meeting. They love working at a cafe on a MacBook. There's just something about the status of using these products that make you feel good. Also, they work well. Um, then you look at services and it's like, does anyone feel good about paying Apple $5 a month for storage? Or, you know, uh, I mean, Apple Music is something that people are are into because it's been the default versus Spotify. And I'm curious if you think that it's sort of um, what it means for Apple if we're going to end up in a world where services is the lead for them or at least core to their business. And um, generally people who are interacting with it are going to feel like, oh, this is kind of like a necessary evil or like, you know, Apple is, here's that uh, $5 bill from Apple again on services. Can't believe they're, you know, taking my money for this. Also, like there's definitely been, at least with the people I speak with, this sentiment that like Apple is doing whatever it can to get money from them in every way. And I just wonder how you think people's relationship will change based off of that emphasis on services. 
Yeah, it's a good question because it sort of leads to the idea of like, is Apple like nickel and diming people after they've paid a thousand plus dollars, right, for their devices, potentially? Um, Are they now, you know, trying to get five dollars for iCloud and ten dollars for Apple Music and all this stuff? I think the answer to that, and we're going to see that soon, it sounds like, um, is that they're going to start to bundle things together and make it a little bit more seamless. So, you know, because I have you know, a handful of, uh, of different bills that come in from Apple when I rent a movie on iTunes, uh, Apple Music, uh, iCloud, like we just mentioned. Like, and so I think if they can make it a little bit more seamless, that will alleviate some of that tension. At the end of the day, though, like, you know, what you're saying is basically right, that they, they need to com- be able to compete with the best services, not just ones that are uh, tied, um, you know, very tightly to the hardware um if they're not the best like people you know are going to at in the back of their mind at least start to you know not not appreciate that and and maybe you know start to start to wander elsewhere like you noted the hardware is still by far the best it seems like and and uh you know it doesn't seem like that's that's sort of been shifting or or anyone's worried about that changing um anytime soon uh and so I think the bundles will be key, but they do need, and this has been talked about uh, in the past couple of weeks at least, uh, you know, the the idea of of a linchpin for what uh, what needs to be a part of that bundle. And and you'll know this, you know, on your on the Amazon side, um, obviously with Prime, um, because they have such an awesome experience with shipping uh, that all the other stuff that they have a part of Prime just feels like icing on the cake. Right now with Apple, if they bundled anything together, which again, it seems like they're going to do, like what is that linchpin? What is that key uh, part of uh, the bundle? And and John Gruber and and others have written about this of like, you know, wondering what that would be. Right now, it seems like it's Apple Music, but uh, you know, that's honestly, that's just not a great linchpin. I mean, it's it's good, um, but there's Spotify, as you know, and some people are, are like Spotify a lot more than they like Apple Music. And so what else could it be? I come back to, I think eventually it has to be the iPhone. And, and if you, you know, start to pay for it on a monthly cadence, uh, and it becomes part of a, an Apple one package that, you know, that they are rumored to be calling it, uh, that makes some sense to me, but I think we're a ways away from doing that. I think they're going to dip their toes in the water much more, um, easily by again, bundling music news plus, which is something that certainly doesn't seem like anyone really needs, uh, Apple TV plus, which is doing a little bit better, but still is not a vital thing. And so they're going to have some, um, some hard decisions though, uh, to sort of make in terms of like what, it, what they do from a marketing perspective, even just like for what is a key part of that Apple one bundle. Yeah, that's right. It's like, what is Apple? That's the main thing that I've been asking myself, like, what's the identity of this company? And, you know, I'll give the company some credit. I mean, ever since I started really digging deeply into the company for the book, um, I was definitely very pessimistic about them, but they have continued to do very well. And I just keep reading news about them and saying, okay, got to hand it to Apple. This business is working. This plan is working. Um, But there are certainly some challenges to it. So we're going to speak a little bit about how Apple and Epic, the maker of Fortnite, are facing off in one of those challenges that could really end up being a defining battle for Apple as it looks uh, towards the rest of 2020 and ahead. So we'll be right back after this with MG Siegler to talk about that. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. 
a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back here with MG Siegler, partner at GV, formerly known as Google Ventures, also great Apple reporter uh, back in the day at TechCrunch and VentureBeat. And also, MG, you write like extremely frequently. Um, We'll talk a little bit about how you balance that in the the next segment. But um, your work can be found. Tell everyone where your work can be found. I hate when people wait till the end to let people know where to find your stuff. If people are still listening, they like what you're saying, they should be able to go find it. Yeah. So for the past several years, um, I've been just, you know, doing my own writing on the side. Um, you know, obviously it's not the day job anymore, but still writing on the side because it helps clarify my own thoughts. And so I do that at a, a site that I just call 500 ish. It's 500 ish.com. Uh, it's, you know, on run on medium, but, uh, it's basically, you know, my own blog, uh, that I yeah continue to write a ton about Apple as you might expect, but other things here and there as well. Yeah. It's, it's always a super fun read. Um, one of the things that you've been covering a little bit lately is the Apple against Epic fight. Epic is the maker of Fortnite. They tried to, uh, create a payment system that would sub- subvert Apple's payment systems, which they have to pay 30% tax on for every dollar they get. Uh, and they try to create their own. Apple kicked them off the App Store. And now I think just before, I mean, this podcast is going to come out in about a week after we record. So who knows what the heck's going to happen. But right before we came on air, Apple is terminating Epic's developer account. So NG, what's your read of this fight? And who do you think is going to win? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this. I'm hesitant to even sort of try to predict at this point because I feel like it's played out differently than I may have expected um, when it first kicked off. You know, I think that that Epic did sort of a a, a rather Apple-like incredible job of sort of uh, trolling Apple with obviously the 1984 spoof ad um, and just sort of you know like caught them by surprise. I think a little bit with as you noted rolling out. Where they had a, a Fortnite, yeah. Sorry, I just want to make sure that we get the context. They had a Fortnite character basically walk into the same setting as the 1984 ad, with like a unicorn sledgehammer, and throw it at yep. an apple that looked a little bit like Tim Cook, who was talking the same way that the character from the 1984 ad right. was basically. You know, Apple was saying we were the upstart. Stop listening to big computing like IBM, and now Fortnite saying, "You know, look, Apple, you've become exactly the same problem that you were trying to fight back in the end." Okay, sorry. You can go ahead. I just wanted to make sure to give that context. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 it's important context because uh, because ultimately what it feels like that Epic and, and Apple are, are fighting, they're basically fighting sort of a, a, a PR and marketing warfare, uh, which is interesting because that has been Apple's, um, you know, home turf historically, right? Like Apple gets great press. They obviously do great marketing and how is Epic going to, um, you know, sort of go at them? And they just went straight at them in their seeming position of strength. And, uh, you know, to my to my eyes, they've done a really good job of it so far. I think that they're they're really challenging Apple and, and making people sort of um, choose one side or the other. Um, it feels like um, that this is this is, Apple's obviously taking this very, very seriously. And you can see it in their actions. Um not only the fact that, uh, as you noted, they just terminated uh, Epic's accounts, um, and you know it's a little bit more nuanced than that because, uh, it, you know, as as you've heard over the past few days, it seems like that the the judge that this ultimately went to decided that it was okay if Apple wanted to to sort of keep um, Fortnite the game off of the App Store, but they they weren't able to um, 
to stop people from using the Unreal Engine, which powers a lot of different types of games uh, by many different people. Um, and so, uh, but still, terminating that that account that developer uh, certificate is a big deal because it means that now we're sort of past the point of no return where they where Epic can't even update uh, Fortnite, which, as you know, they just rolled out a big update for everyone that's not on iOS devices um, to be able to play you know, the, the newest iteration of the season with, I think, Marvel characters now. And so, uh, you know, iOS is sort of being sandboxed. You can still use it if you had it previously installed, but you're not playing the new content and you're not playing against uh, the world. You're playing against only other iOS users. And so Apple's clearly taking this seriously and not backing down. And it seems like Epic's it's also taking this seriously and not backing down. I would have expected one of them to back down by, by this point, just given the stakes uh, that, that are at play. But um you know, I think Apple views this as sort of a threat for the reason that we, that we were talking about earlier. This is this is a huge part of the services narrative is the 30% cut. And it's bigger than that because obviously everyone talks about the 30% cut and that, that does matter. And I think that that is, uh, you know, sort of in, in flux and in on top of a lot of people's mind because it's the most forward-facing part of the equation. But the bigger part is also like what Epic did is, is you know, try to use their own payment method. Um, uh, to be able to to get people to to pay them directly and not have to have to pay any cut to Apple, and um, obviously Apple's not going to be okay with that because again, these these payments, no matter what the cut is, is a huge huge part of the services narrative. Right, but the question that that you know, okay, so if you take a step back, the question is, why does Apple get to charge these exorbitant rents to people just for the very like fact that they can use? the operating system that Apple has built. I'm going to read something that you actually called out in a recent blog post about the way that Steve Jobs viewed this thing. He said, our philosophy is simple. When Apple brings a new subscriber to the app, Apple earns 30% share. Mm -hmm. When the publisher brings an existing or new subscriber to the app, the publisher keeps 100% and Apple earns nothing. So why, I mean, first of all, like Apple, when they first started this stuff, uh, already were were basically laying out the fact that Apple taking 30% off of everything would be unfair. Why do you think it's it's uh, tenable for Apple to take that thirty percent if if they if it is, and then why do you think they're deviating so much from that original strategy that Jobs laid out? Yeah, I mean, so that was uh, it was funny. I, I stumbled upon that um, statement because someone had shared a former colleague, Jason Kincaid, who used to work with me at TechCrunch. We used to go back and forth. I was a pro Apple uh, person; he was sort of anti Apple person, and so we had these blog posts that would go back and forth about takes on their various uh, announcements at the time. And it was almost ten years ago that that Apple rolled out in-app subscriptions, which is at sort of the heart of what we're talking about now. And your quote, the quote you just read from Steve Jobs, was in the press release when they announced this, and you know it was it was a big enough deal that Jobs himself gave a quote about it, and that quote. Um, is, uh, you know, important, obviously, in what we're thinking about. Now, Apple would say that, look, it's still the same as as it was back then, because, um, you know, you can still bring your own uh, user base to the service. And, um, you know, we're not taking a cut of that, like with, uh, you know, with Netflix, uh, for example. Things have changed, though, quite a bit, as you know. Like, it used to be that you could sign up within Netflix, uh, or sorry, within the Netflix app, uh, and then, yeah, Netflix would pay that 30% cut to Apple. Or if you signed up on the web, uh, they didn't pay that 30% cut. And again, philosophically, Jobs thought that that was the right thing to do. What's changed, of course, is that Netflix decided they were going to pull out um, of that of that agreement. And I don't think you can sign up currently through uh, their iOS app. So you have to sign up on the web. But the crazy thing is Netflix can't tell you that you can sign up on the web. They can't say anything about that per Apple's terms of service or otherwise the app will be blocked and, and they won't be able to uh, to have it in the app store. And that's where I think this this really 
sort of irks me and a lot of people. I don't think that Apple, while they might be sort of explicitly following, uh, you know, the 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 letter of what Jobs said back then. I don't think they're following the intent of what was was implied by what he was saying. To me, it all reads, if you go back and read those quotes, I think he's basically saying like, look, we're launching this new in-app purchase service because we're trying to make the best user experience for people to be able to transact uh, within our within our apps and, and on our devices. And we think that we can create a better experience for those users using what at the time was the iTunes Rails um, to be able to to pay for these subscription services. And now it's obviously all run through the app store, but, um, and, and, you know, if, if you feel like if you're a service that brings in your own, um, users a different way, you know, and you can do that, that's great. You get to keep all of that money. And if, if they choose to use our, um, you know, rails to do it, then we'll take that 30% cut. And we can talk about the 30% cut itself in a second. But, um, I just think that Apple has deviated from that sort of mentality. And now it's all just like, how do we make sure that they are taking, that we are getting that 30% cut and they are signing up our via, you know, our mechanism. So it feels like they're not so much competing on having the best, uh, experience or product necessarily anymore. They're competing on obfuscation and trying to make it confusing and or just like impossible yeah. to sign up. Um, you know, while I noted like Netflix was the one, it seems like that pulled out. It's extremely user hostile. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And but you know, I think there were other reasons behind that, like why they pulled out. And and yeah, I mean I think that it's the mentality is just changed over the past decade. That's right. Uh, now, the argument for Apple being able to charge that 30% cut is that, you know, it's almost like you built the store and then uh, there's a company that wants to come and sell products in your store. What right do they have to be able to go and do that for free? Um, so so where do you land? Is the 30% cut fair or unfair? So to me, that boils down to, I think that when it launched, it was fair enough. I think it came from a weird place, right? Like you can look back again at the reports of the time and you can basically, you know, deduce how they, they got to it. It more or less seemed like it was a combination of um, what Apple was charging for iTunes individual songs at the time, right? So they had the 99 cent songs via iTunes music store, and they would take a 30% cut um, of each of those songs. And so I think jobs on down just looked at and said like, yeah, let's just keep it simple and do the same thing with apps. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they started with obviously doing that with paid apps and then there became in-app purchases and then there became subscriptions. And, and now it's sort of the standard thing. And now of course, Apple is, is pointing like, look, this is, this is not just us. This is an industry standard where, where I, I beg to differ on that is I think that Apple should be leading by example here again. Like, Yes, it might be sort of the standard because they sort of set it that way and Google and everyone else now uses that same standard and and some of the other video game uh, councils and whatnot now now are all sort of on the same standard. But I think Apple is in a position, certainly as a $2 trillion company and as one of the biggest companies in the world, to be able to say like, we want to do things a little bit differently. Look, we, we recognize that 10 years ago uh, when we set out to do this, um, you know, there were, there was, there were businesses that we could not have imagined that would be built on top of the app store. And that's amazing. And, uh, you know, Apple deserves credit for that certainly, but I think that they should get a lot more granular in terms of, uh, how they support those types of businesses and recognize that not every type of business necessarily should, you know, be 
taken a 30% cut of their revenue out of. And I know that they've they've changed it slightly over the years, right? They have the 30% sort of finder's fee that can morphs into a 15% thing in year two and whatnot. But some of that was just because of back-end deals that they cut with some of the other bigger players like Amazon. Um, and then they felt like probably some level of hypocrisy if they didn't offer it to everyone. But there's still a lot of hypocrisy going on behind the scenes. Everyone knows that, that they cut certain deals and, you know, there's like whispered uh, meetings that happen behind the scenes, you know, to make sure that, uh, that you know, all sides are, are sort of, you know, working together, um, even though it's not in the most transparent way possible that say like a little developer who's doing a single app, you know, doesn't have sort of this, the same type of white glove uh, experience. Um, and so again, I just go back to the idea that these rules were set in place a decade ago. The world is very different than it was a decade ago. And certainly the mobile world is very different than it was a decade ago. And the app ecosystem and everything that Apple's helped create again, I'm not saying that they, they, they need to like give this stuff away for free and they don't deserve any sort of um, you know credit and fee for doing this. They absolutely do. I just think it needs to be a lot more granular. And I think it needs to be rethought from the ground up for the 2020 world, not the 2010 world. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I think that like when it comes down to it, this is more of a quality. Okay, Apple and Epic will have their their fight and their power plays and things like that. But we're also going to come out down to the point where like houses can impact the actual people that buy the devices. So we could talk all day long about whether it's fair for the developers. But at the end of the day, how are people who are going to be paying for Apple phones going to feel when they can't use some of their favorite apps on it? Uh, I think you wrote about this. No, you did write about this as well. Here's another thing I want to read. Uh, you wrote with seemingly each passing week, Apple is eroding that relationship uh, with developers thanks to move like this one. And if that continues at some point, it has to change the other side of the equation as well. Users may not want to walk from the products they know and love, but they will if the apps they know and love just aren't there. So what sort of risk from like a, severing a relationship with its own customers is Apple running when it makes moves like this? Yeah, so it's interesting in in the context of what we were talking about because like, you know, when we were first like writing about and reporting about a decade ago when they launched some of these 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 things like the in-app purchase you know, people were saying the same things at the time. Like I mentioned, Jason Kincaid, he was he was saying like like this is the risk of all of this that um, you know that that developers end up balking um, at the payment structure and then they walk and then uh, users follow. Obviously, that hasn't really happened over the past decade. And uh, the the question is why is it happening now? And I feel like there's a number of reasons, and and I feel like they're all interrelated um, things from the tech clash in general on down, and you know the, these companies being called called in front of Congress and, and everything, I think is all uh, emboldening some of the other um, key players in the space, players like Epic um, and Facebook and everyone else that we've talked about, even though Facebook is, of course, on sort of both sides here as, as one of the big behemoths also. Um, but, but you know, I think it's just emboldening some of the um, some of the other players that necessarily wouldn't have been able to speak up or didn't feel like they could speak up in the past and now feel like they can. And I do think that there's a risk that this can start to snowball on Apple. Apple, and we're already seeing it now that we don't have, uh, you know, feature parity for Fortnite. And I don't think that that necessarily breaks, um, you know, the camel's back. But I think that if that that plus another, you know, major app say, all of a sudden you can't use Spotify on uh, the iPhone, I think that that would be a massive deal. If you can't use Netflix on the iPhone, that would be a massive deal. And all those things combined would be a really big deal. And that could actually lead to some change. And and I mean, it, you know, maybe a year ago, certainly five years ago, it would have seemed inconceivable that that could possibly happen. But things are sort of moving in that direction more and more. And so that's why I feel like Apple 
at some point, you would hope, has to recognize that. And that's why I do believe that they will ultimately start to move a little bit on and make some of these changes. Uh, the question is, how um, transparent are they going to be about that? And, and how much um, are they going to work with everyone, not just sort of some of the bigger developers um, behind the scenes? And, and to Epic's credit, they've said that they don't want to be the ones, you know, that are getting the special deals. You know, obviously, that's a bit self-serving. And, and who knows, you know. It has to be everyone. Yeah. Right. They're, yeah. they're saying it has to be. Everyone. I've been surprised so, that no one else good. has stood up and said, uh, you know, we're going to do this too. Like all these other companies voiced support, but would it make a similar move that Epic did? Um, I wonder what would happen if it wasn't just Epic, but it was all the companies that voiced their discomfort with Apple's policies like Netflix, like Facebook, like Tinder. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that Epic is, I think there've been reports that they've been talking to these folks and, and they're trying to create sort of maybe a coalition um, you know, obviously it's a, there's Antitrust fine lines stuff. to skirt with yeah. legality of that. Yeah. But, um, but I think that, uh, you know, I think that they, they would prefer that others came with them and, and yeah, also not just fought with words, but also fought with actions. And the question really is, is Epic the first mover here or are they the only mover here? Because if they're the only mover here, they at some point will unfortunately lose the leverage, um, you know, that they might have even with a game as big as Fortnite. And so I think it does have to be others coming to rally behind them in order to really make change. Okay, well, let's do a quick uh, lightning round here towards the end. I mean, this is, I'm just kind of going to make this up off the fly like I did with Casey Newton. Hopefully it will work out okay. Um, <laughs> and I'll just give you some things, see if you can answer quickly. Uh, mm -hmm. So the first one, are you still, you know, you mentioned you were pro that Kincaid was negative Apple on Apple. Are you still pro Apple? I'm still largely pro Apple, I think. I think that some of their moves recently are boneheaded. I think that, again, they need to revisit some of those policies. But, uh, you know, I still use Apple devices, you know, even though, as, as we noted in the get-go, obviously I work at a fund uh, where our LP is, is uh, you know, one of, one of the rivals of Apple. But I still use Apple devices um, like more than any other type of device. And I love the products. And I just wish that they would sort of recognize and read the room better um, in terms of where they are right now in the ecosystem. Okay, great. And does a does a two trillion dollar valuation make sense? I mean, they are you know an insanely profitable company, the likes of which we've never seen before, thanks to the iPhone. Um, you know, I remember back in the day reporting on the race to uh, to beat Exxon as the most valuable valuable company, right? And it seemed absurd that a uh, that a technology company could beat an oil company, and now it seems you know like. <laughs> absurd in the other way. And so I don't know if 2 trillion is warranted. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, a public market investor that can sort of uh, quantify how best to, to value these things off of future earnings and whatnot. But, um, but I do think, you know, they are in the best position uh, to make the most amount of profits off of the user base that they, that they've been able to, to gather over time. And so uh, if, if Amazon's 1.6 trillion and Microsoft's 1.6 trillion, I think, you know, seeing Apple at two trillion right now is makes sense in that capacity. But overall, it's all relative. Okay, all right, way to wiggle out of that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, is Apple still the biggest company in the world five years from now? I would, if I had to guess, I would say that Amazon is. Okay, that's great. Um, and then from a, from a market cap perspective, I, I, I'm with you on that. All right. Last question in the lightning round, who wins Apple or Epic? <laughs> I know. Just if you had to, if you had to put your finger on it and just guess one of them, which one would it be? It's obviously going to be more nuanced than that, but I think that it directionally, directionally, <laughs> okay. I'll say that I think that 
Epic ends up getting some of what they want. Okay, that's great. All right, we're going to go to one more break. We'll come back for five more minutes with MG to talk a little bit about uh, the work-life balance and the work balance and uh, just where the economy is going in general. All right, stick with us. We'll be right back. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Okay, we're back here for one more segment, quick segment, uh, with MG Siegler of GV, formerly Google Ventures. He also writes the great analysis on Apple and other companies called 500-ish, which you can find, as he mentioned earlier, uh, on 500ish.com and Medium. Did I get that right, MG? Yep, that's all right. Okay, great. So um, just a few quick questions before we end. You are a prolific writer um, and you're also working as a partner in a VC firm. How do you balance it all? So, yeah, I mean, I've been on the VC side of things almost 10 years now, which is sort of crazy to think about. It was actually longer than I was ever a reporter. And I sort of stumbled into reporting um, just because I was working as a web developer and I, I always loved writing. And so I was just writing on the side about technology and and that caught the eye of people um, at VentureBeat um, and other places. And so, you know, they, they sort of asked me to come over and, and see if I would be willing to do this full time. At the time, I thought there was there was no way you could sort of make a living just blogging about technology, and uh, and then of course that that took me to San Francisco and 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 led me indirectly to where I am now. But the balance of it now, um, you know, I was worried about it ten years ago, but ultimately I, I've recognized that the writing. Uh, is important to what I do because it really clarifies my own thinking about things. And it also is, you know, in a way it brings in interesting people who, who learn my perspective on things. And even if it's not necessarily about like their company or what they're doing, I think that it helps clarify my line of thinking just like it does for myself. And so it's uh it's a good balance that I've been able to strike. It's taken a long time and it's not easy to maintain, but I, I like where I'm at now. Yeah. It's um, it reminds me a little bit about the six pagers in Amazon where like in order to clarify their thinking on new products they want to build, they write it all down and it helps you spot gaps in the way you wouldn't if you were just playing around with it in your brain or doing a PowerPoint. So it seems like that that's working out well for you. Mm-hmm. I've always respected that about Amazon for sure. Uh, what's it like investing today? I mean, what are you seeing coming through the pipeline as the economy in the middle of the coronavirus, uh, you know, in the tech world, somewhat similar to what you were seeing before or is it changed in a dramatic way? It definitely took a pause for a little bit when when COVID hit, um, mainly because you know I think every everyone at at a VC fund um, you have a lot of portfolio companies and no one was knew what was going to happen right and so we had to do a lot of work with the current portfolio companies to look inward and, and figure out how we batten down the hatches and and help keep companies afloat um, and in some cases you know unfortunately companies had to went under. Obviously, there have been a lot of layoffs across the board for all sorts of different types of companies. Um, but other companies, you know, have have been able to to use this time to figure out um, both what they what they really need to focus on more, um, and others are using it to to create new companies. Um, and you know, there's obviously a lot of different spaces that that are taking sort of. Um, unique approaches to the current world that we're in, obviously from zoom on down with video conferencing, 
uh, you know, remote work from Slack on down. And, and, and so there's all sorts of trickle down effects uh, that are that are maybe were hard to see at first. But there's a, we just went through the latest uh, Y Combinator batch of companies. There's, you know, nearly 200 companies that launched out of there. And a lot of them are focused on a lot of the, the world in which we live now for yeah remote working, for video, um, for all different sorts of things that are just uh, just a different environment. So it's um, it's very different than it was a year ago uh, in terms of just overall feel. You obviously can't go and meet with companies in person anymore, unfortunately. And so that makes the job a little bit harder, but there's opportunities in it too. Um, and so I think everyone is, is getting their footing back to sort of f- figure out what those opportunities are at this point. Okay. And that's sort of a great segue for me to ask the last question I wanted to ask, which is about Slack, a company you've invested in. Uh, I have the perspective that Slack can be um, negative for some organizations and mostly that CEOs will end up cracking down on it because you know they see a, it as something that takes away any hesitation you have in normal communication uh, and you end up uh, fighting with your coworkers and saying things you wouldn't say. And CEOs are spending a lot of their time responding to drama versus like actually working on getting stuff done, um, obviously, there's like a positive component for workers being able to voice their opinions uh, in ways they couldn't before and, and organize. Um, but if you think about it from a CEO perspective, sometimes it can be a bit of a mixed bag. So would you acknowledge that there are some of these issues inside Slack and how do you think it it gets through them or do you think it's just going to be part of working from now on? Yeah, so I I read you know your Slacklash uh, <laughs> <laughs> newsletter, um, and and you know I I would say that it, it's of course not the first Slacklash. There there have been multiple Slacklashes. It's it's such a great uh, it's such a great word uh, that slots in so nicely with that. But um, but yeah, I mean. I, my viewpoint on this, and as you note, sort of, obviously I have my own biases. Uh, I was an investor in Slack when it was still a, a, a private company. I was a board observer there and, and, you know, we remain, um, investors in Slack, but I don't have any inside information about what they're doing these days. But I would say, you know, taking a step back, it looks like that these are, um, challenges and opportunities, uh, you know, for, for the, for new companies that are, that are emerging, um, like Slack. And I think that you're seeing, uh, in the world that we were just talking about in the COVID world, you know, Slack has been a very, very positive tool for many companies because how on earth are you going to operate, uh, communications wise, if you don't have a tool like Slack, um, but there are real side effects of people being connected all the time and being in, you know, channels and, and all of these new paradigms that Slack has helped create and how you do that to me, it boils down to, I think you need to have a culture uh, that's led from the top um, that you know instills the right sort of elements uh, to make sure that 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 employees are, are treating each other respectfully. And I don't think that this is unique to Slack. I think that this is you know something that you've seen in the past over email, uh, you've seen over IM and all the other tools. And you know Slack's not going to be the last of them either. You'll see things in the future, I'm sure that that have some of the same challenges. I do think it's a unique time because again, we're living in a world where we're all remote, and these are the tools that are being used more than ever. And it's faster perhaps than it ever has been over a tool like email, which is good and you know and has side effects to it too, which are playing out now, um, sort of as you're noting. But again, I think that that the companies will figure this out. I think that that's that's you know, this is something that again has to be led from 
sort of the top down from a culture perspective to make sure that that people are treating each other with respect and and that communications lines remain open and that dialogue remains open and uh you know i think that people will figure that out this is the the early days of these types of uh of new tools and again I have to wonder what it was like, you know, back in the day when email rolled out within organizations and, uh, you know, were people up in arms, were managers up in arms because no one was talking to each other as much in the office anymore. Or, you know, people were were taking advantage of being able to communicate sort of at night versus just in the office environment. And so I think that all of these things have different, you know, nuances uh, to them, given that they're different technologies. But, uh, the, you know, this is this is the latest one. That's right. And maybe the real problem was the BlackBerry, <laughs> not just the software. It was <laughs> That's this right. expectation that you'd be online at all time. I know. Okay, we'll take it. We'll take it. Well, MG, it's really been a pleasure. A, a great nuanced perspective that you've been able to bring to the show. And, you know, for me, it's just been personally great to be able to, you know, shoot the shit with you about Apple after reading so much of your work uh, over the past couple of years. So I really do appreciate you joining us. Um, Folks, make sure to go out and subscribe to MG's newsletter or follow him on Medium. Get him on Twitter. You're probably already there yet. <laughs> probably already there already. Uh, but MG, really think, want to say thanks again. It was really great having you on. Yeah, thanks so much, Alex. It was a fun conversation. All right, folks. Well, uh, if you enjoyed the conversation, please give us a rating on the, your, your podcast app of choice and subscribe. Most importantly, uh, we will be back next week with another episode. And thanks always for listening.